Hopefully you're having a good little chat about life groups and community and finding that. But uh, let's just begin to turn our attention up here. My name is Eric Wakeling, one of the pastors here at Calvary and excited to get into this whole series uh, on overcoming through the book of Judges. Now, we're here on January 11th, okay? January 11th is that time where you're starting to see if maybe a goal that you set or a New Year's resolution that you've made or something like that has like already been given up on, you know, like 10 days really into trying or like it's okay, I can see this, maybe I could actually sustain something. But I think something that, that happens when we have these sorts of new goals or, or resolutions is that when we're making the resolution, we're 100% wholehearted, committed into it, Right? And so we're making it and we're that way. And then when it comes to actually doing something about it, we're sort of like half-hearted, like halfway commitment. And we wonder then why does it not work? Why does it not last? Because anything that we do halfway, it just doesn't work. It doesn't last. It doesn't have any kind of staying power or effect on our lives. And I think that's, you know, especially like most, I think, of these sorts of uh, resolutions are sort of like, exercise and diet related, the vast majority of them, I think. I mean, hopefully we're also making some about relationships and education and being growing people and all those sorts of things. But uh, like, I think a lot of times it comes to that and, and we think, you know, what we do, especially with diet, I think we, we, we end up giving ourselves the worst life possible because what we do is we make these goals that we would say, I'm going to eat healthy, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, but then we don't really do it. And so we're not really getting all of the awesome food, but we're also not seeing any of the change in our lives, and we feel guilty all the time. Now, that just sounds terrible, right? I'd rather, like, either do it all the way or just don't do it at all and just enjoy the food. You know, and it's like this sort of thing where this halfway deal just doesn't work. And so as we get into this, as we start to talk about uh, how do we overcome, how do we have this life that we see God working in and we, we're living a life for God to the fullest, I want us to really consider that God wants our whole hearts, okay? God wants all of us, all of it, all of us, all of our being, every ounce. God wants our whole hearts. And so we're going to be looking today as we kick off this whole series in Judges, at Judges chapters 1 and chapter 2, which that whole part is basically this summary of what happens in the whole book. It kind of tells you what's going to happen, and then later there's all these stories that really illustrate how it happens over and over again. And, uh, and so the thing is, like, the results when we follow God with our whole heart, it's awesome, right? It's a great gift. It's beautiful. We see change transformation happen in our lives as we live fully, completely for God. But this sort of halfway thing doesn't work. And it really didn't work for the people of Israel. Because what would happen and what's described in Judges 1 and 2, and you'll see this cycle on the screen, this circle. Also, I'd encourage you, if you've got a bulletin, grab the notes. You can see the picture a little bit closer on the back there. Uh, and this map I'm going to refer to in a moment as well. But in this, this, this picture, this cycle, what's happening throughout the whole book of Judges is that you have that the people have kind of gone halfway and the people rebel. God becomes angry with them. Then they're oppressed by these enemies. These other nations come and oppress them and, and just rule over them and even kill them. And it's brutal. 
And then so the people cry out and they repent and they cry out to God for help. And so then God sends them a deliverer through a judge. They, they receive this salvation through a judge. They're saved from the persecution of their enemies. And then there's a period of peace. And then the judge dies. And then usually just a short while later, every time, a short while later, then the people rebel and the cycle continues. And it just goes over and over and over again like that through the book of Judges. And then you see on this map uh, and also there in your bulletin that all those, all those squares up there, those are all different judges. This story takes place with all these different people. And, and so it's just happening over and over again. You can see there where these stories take place, with whom. And you're probably super familiar with the Gideons, the Deborahs, and the Samsons. But there's probably a bunch like the Abdons and the Tolas that you don't really remember. And there's also not a lot told about most of them as well. So that's part of it. But you can see how this cycle is just repeating itself and repeating itself. And, and so what we want to look at today is how can we learn from their story, okay? And the first point that I want to make as we try to learn from them is that half-hearted discipleship doesn't last, okay? This half-hearted following of God does not work. And so let's look at uh, Judges 1. Hopefully, okay, got your Bibles. Open up to Judges 1. We're going to read uh, a bunch of verses in here, but... Um, I want to just refer quickly, though, to Deuteronomy 7. Back in Deuteronomy 7, you get some instructions from God of what they're supposed to do. And I'm just going to refer to it now because there's like a ton here. But in Deuteronomy 7, there's just things like, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dis- disp- dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what God has done. And he goes on to say that you need to completely rid the land of these idols. You cannot live amongst them. You have to completely get rid of them. And so then we go to Judges. Okay, so Judges 1. 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So God says, I've given it to him. I have done this already for him. Just go and do what I've already given you. And so what's the very first thing he does? Judah says to Simeon, his brother, come up with me. It's just this little brief like, initial already example where instead of him just saying, all right, God, you've said it'll happen. Let's go do it. He turns to try and get help from his brother. He says, hey, if you help me, I'll help you. We'll kind of do this thing, me and you together. All right? So it's just an initial example of them not trusting in the Lord completely. Um, and so Simeon did go with him. And that, that story goes on to verse uh, 4. It says, Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. They defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled. This part gets kind of crazy. And they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. You're probably like, what in the world? Why do they cut off his thumbs and big toes? You'll find out here in verse 7. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. 
And then it continues, and we're going to skip through a little bit all, all the way down to verse 19. And it just kind of goes on that they're, they're battling against these people, they're battling against these people, they're battling against these people. And then verse 19, it says, Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak, But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we'll treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beit Sheon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And then the verse that's up on the screen, it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Okay, so what's going on here is that God has given them a command, okay? God has given them a command to drive these other uh, nations and their idols out completely from the promised land. And that was designed so that it would be for the best possible life for them. So that they would have a life that was free from this like idolatry and temptation to follow these false gods. And then into just being completely and utterly destroyed by nations who are sacrificing their children and all of these just horrible, horrible things. And God has what's best for them in mind, but they don't do it. And the thing is here, and we're going to really learn how this more and more doesn't work and why, that, that God, God wants for them what God wants for us is he wants lordship over every area of our lives, not just some of them. God gives commands. He doesn't say, hey, just do this part of it. But, you know, the rest of what I was saying is sort of doesn't really matter that much, right? You know, and it doesn't work that way. God wants lordship over every area of our lives, that a, that a halfway sort of discipleship doesn't work, it doesn't last, that we either give all of our lives to God or none of it. Like partway obedience, there's a, there's a word for that, it's called compromise, that we don't want to live a life of compromise before God, that, that we, are, we are actually overcome, just as the Israelites were, when we try to half-heartedly follow Jesus. And uh, something else that, that they do is they've got this thing where they say, I can't, and it's sort of a justification for disobedience, okay? And it's something I think that is, is hard and common maybe for us as well. What happens is we read in Judges 1.19, it says, they could not drive them out because they had these chariots. But later on, we read in verse 2.2 that God says, you have not obeyed me, okay? So they say we couldn't do it, essentially, right? But God's like, no, 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 it's that you wouldn't do it. It's not that you couldn't, it's that you wouldn't. And I think that's a very common theme for us that we want to say, but I can't, it's too hard, or it's whatever, it's all that. But no, it's more about that 
we wouldn't. And so we need to begin to examine our hearts, examine our minds and our lives of, of where that pops up. I think a couple uh, categories that we make these sorts of can't justifications are, one is in forgiveness. We say, I can't forgive that person. I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her of this or that. When really maybe it's that we won't. And God calls for us to give forgiveness as he gives forgiveness. You know, I think another one is difficult truth-telling. Saying the truth in love, okay? That that is something that is very easy for us to say, I can't say that. Now, we're not just talking about being just like flippantly hurtful to people or something, okay? But the sense of where something needs to be said, and you say, I can't, it'll, it'll, it'll be awkward, you know? Like, I don't know. Like, we are called to say the truth in love, in a spirit of love and grace, obviously. Uh, another one is temptation. When it comes to standing strong in temptation, it's like, I, I just can't, I can't stop, right? That sort of thing. I, I can't stop doing that. It's just, it's just too hard, and God says, no, it's probably more you won't stop, okay? Because we need to be people that are crying out to God for him to help us when it comes to those moments, but also for us to recognize that, yeah, we can't resist temptation alone. We cry out to him, but we also need to surround ourselves with people, even like as Laura's talking about life groups, people that will help us. Uh, even as we talk about things like Celebrate Recovery as part of our church where people are going to help you with those things that are those super difficult addictions and habits to be able to overcome that we need to receive help. But So it's not an I can't. It's maybe you can't alone, but we can with the Spirit of God. But sometimes we just choose to say, no, no, I won't. And, and a lot of times I think too with this that God sees these sorts of what we feel like these failures in our lives, you know, to obey Him. It, it it's really it tends to be also an act of, of not remembering, right? Really not remembering what God has done. And he has this, this challenge for us to remember, don't forget, okay? This theme, I think, is like throughout the Old Testament. Remember, don't forget, where the people of Israel don't remember and they do forget and it leads them into like huge times of trouble right and so we want to be people who say okay remember don't forget remember what god has done don't forget the way that god works you know don't forget what he's done in my life don't forget what i read in the scriptures right remember that remember how he has worked in the scriptures and in our own lives and then we need to pass on that faith i would say to the next generation as it talks about in this passage but also even just to our friends and neighbors and people around us who are not, maybe, maybe they don't know Jesus or they're not quite as far along in the faith as we are, but we need to pass our faith on. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty brutal what happens you know, in this passage when uh, you think about how they did not pass their faith on. In Judges 2, 10 through 11, if you look just a little bit ahead, it says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers which means they died, got a little side note, gathered to their fathers. That, what that means is they're, they're like, their father has died and his bones have been put in a box, an ossuary box. And then when they die, their bones get put in the same box. So that's why there's that expression, gathered to their fathers, which I think is just kind of a cool little side note. But uh, so when they died, um, verse uh, 10, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. 
So they've been commanded, right? They've been commanded in Deuteronomy 6, as we know, hey, you need to pass this on. Uh, that you need to tell your children about this as you walk, as you sit, as you lie down throughout all these times of life. You need to tell them that I am God and remember the way I've delivered you. And these people like in this one generation go from people who have seen these great miracles of coming into the promised land and waters of the whole Jordan River being held up and then walking across and Jericho and the walls tumbling down, like all that kind of stuff. And then now they don't even remember God at all. And like, what happened? You know, what happened in the midst of all of that? We have to be people who can pass that on. And so what do we need to do? What do we need to do to be able to pass on that faith? Here's a few things. I'm sure there's a hundred more. But a couple things I'm thinking about. One is that we ourselves must love God wholeheartedly. Okay? Just we ourselves live a life that isn't half-hearted, that's wholeheartedly following God, not hypocritical, not inconsistent, just being consistent to our message of love and grace and the truth of who Jesus is. And we then live that out in a way that they can see it. And then we have to actually uh, apply the scriptures, apply the truths that we see in the gospel practically. Not just kind of having some sort of academic knowledge about it, but actually living it out in our lives. Okay, there's a thing where, uh, we were talking about this in a small group I was in on Wednesday night, where there's a difference between values and ideals. Okay, a value, it's something you value, but that you actually act, you actually act upon that thing. Okay, you actually do something about it. Otherwise, it's just an ideal, right? You might have this sort of thing that you think, uh, again, you know, like exercising. You think exercising is good, but if you don't exercise, it's just an ideal. It's not a value. If you think it's good to read your Bible, you know, that's a, that's a value I have, the foundation of Scripture, right? But you don't actually read it, then it's an ideal. It's not a value to you. And so there's a way that we have to recognize that it needs, these things need to move from ideals to values that we actually live out practically. And then um, we also need to take all these sort of the doctrines of the faith, this, this knowledge that we have, that we've accumulated, and then we, we then need to think about that and kind of relate that to the stories of our own lives, the way that God has worked in our own lives. Um, and, and not just kind of teaching these sorts of principles and truths, but then attaching them for younger people to like, how does God actually work in you? I mean, that's what he's telling them. He says, hey, don't forget to tell them how I delivered you from Egypt. Don't forget to tell them the story of how you were saved, how you were rescued. And so that's what we have to do as well. Tell the, tell the doctrine, but tell the story then of how that plays out in your actual life. Because a generation of half-heartedness leads to a generation of zero-heartedness. Because a half-hearted faith isn't worth emulating. We've got to remember that. It's so easy to sort of just be lax and apathetic, to let that creep in. But that won't be worth following. So this, this, this whole thing, it starts off with this, okay? We've kind of looked at chapter 1. Now I want us to look at chapter 2, where for them, then living among idols does lead to destruction. It's not because God just is heavy-handed. This is, is a brutal time for them in their lives. And so I want us to look at, at Judges 2, okay? We'll look through this. Now it says 2.1, The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, 
And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bohim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Uh, now, it goes on to show how it goes kind of back in time again to Joshua. And again, verse 10, all that generation were gathered. There arose another generation that didn't know about God. Verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, these, these false gods, these idols. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into their hands of their enemies around them. So they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them. So that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges. Who delivered them. This is where we're getting that whole cycle thing happening, okay? Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua." So it's like, I know it's kind of like a lot of text there to go through, but it's like I want to see all of that play out. These two chapters are just a whole summary of what we're going to see now in all those stories that you, that you know of Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Barak and all those others. And so we want to look now at this whole thing of living amongst idols because they allowed the idols to stay in the land and that ultimately led to their destruction. And it talks about idols and idolatry as a thorn and a snare that those are waiting to destroy us. And God wants, God wants to get rid of those idols in our life because he cares for us. He doesn't want us to be destroyed by them. He doesn't want our lives to be in ruin as we follow after false gods in our lives. And so what is idolatry really? Like what is this about? And here's, here's a definition for idolatry is placing, first of all, just placing anything above God. But here even it's making a good aspect of creation 
taking something good, no matter what that is, taking something good, it could be mountains, business, pleasure, marriage, alcohol, whatever it might be, okay? And you turn that into the ultimate source of security, identity, and power. When you have done that, then it's an idol. When that thing becomes the ultimate source of security, identity, and power in your life, it's an idol in your life because God is supposed to be the ultimate source of security, identity. It's who you find, who you are. You are a child of God. You receive all the power in your life through God's power, and you are secure and safe because of the work that he has done, not yourself or not that thing that you're placing as an idol. And so it says, idolatry is a thorn, right? And uh, here you see just even a, a picture of like a plant that kind of looks pretty, you know, it's nice. But those are huge thorns sticking down. Those aren't branches, right? Those are like huge thorns that are these thorns that are hidden amongst the beauty. And, and so when we think about, you know, something as an idol, it just, as a thorn, it continues to make us miserable, okay? You think it's beautiful, but really it brings misery and pain into your life. Uh, it's kind of, you know, the story of, of Narnia, of a lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, right? It's this, this, uh, this idol for him, or whatever, if you want, this, this temptation even, was uh, Edmund, was the younger brother, and he is given by this white witch, Turkish delight, this little treat, but it's enchanted Turkish delight. And when he eats this Turkish delight that's been enchanted by the white witch, it becomes everything that he desires and craves. He has to have it. He ends up betraying his, his brother and sisters and kind of like going, you know, on the side of this white witch and doing all these things. And he's eventually rescued and saved by the, the Christ figure, Aslan. But like for him, this, this thing, this Turkish delight just became everything for him. It's everything he wanted, everything he needed. He would do anything for it. And it was kind of like that, like when we talk about idol, like money. If I only have more, right, I'll be safe. I'll, I'll really be somebody, you know, and then, you know, I'm going to have power in this world if I have money. That's why money, the love of money is the root of all evil, because it's this, such an easy idol, you know, alcohol, right? It's just this thing that shouldn't be terrible, okay? But when you search and find security and safety and comfort and who you, you can only really be who you are if you drink or something, you know, those sorts of things, that that becomes an idol in your life. Your appearance can be an idol, okay? If, if everything about you rises and falls in your identity and security with how you look, how good or bad, whatever that might be, that's an idol. Our work can be an idol in our lives when we sacrifice everything, you know, and it's this, it makes our life miserable because we've sacrificed our family and our health and our relationships to the God of work. And then that, because it's an idol in our life. But idolatry is also a snare, okay, or a trap. And uh, these, these idols can, can trap us and bind us and, and, and hold us down. And, you know, so there's this, this way that we become just totally ensnared and addicted to it. So I want to see just a little picture of how, or a video of how a trap or a snare works. Let's go ahead and check this out. Ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, maybe not a great father figure, but, you know, uh, 
I think it's a good example, right? <laughs> you just blindly follow. And when you start blindly following, ooh, piece of candy, ooh, piece of candy, and then you're trapped, you're just ensnared, and you haven't realized even what's happened. Even Wookiees get ensnared. If you've seen Return of the Jedi, Chewbacca sees this piece of meat, and he can't help himself, and then they all end up in this big net together, you know? And it's just like you see it. It's the, the reason it's a, like, a, like a snare or a trap is because it's kind of hard to see, but it's like there's the bait, there's the bait there, and it might actually be good, or it might just be kind of a fool's gold sort of good. And you go for it, and then it traps you and it ensnares you. And, you know, and so mouse traps have cheese, right? They have cheese for a reason. And so we go after that, which looks good, but, you know, and sometimes we can just give ourselves over to different things, even relationships that can be so destructive in our lives because we've placed them as an idol, So then the people, like, they cry out, and it says they weep, but, like, nothing really, then it's like right after they cry out and weep, they don't tell, you know, they don't do anything about it, and then they're they're going after the idols again, just right after that. And and so it's this half-hearted discipleship again, creeping back in. But this is, we see a lot of physical war taking place on the pages as we read Judges, but we also got to recognize that in their life and in ours, it's really a spiritual war, for though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. This is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual war. And so we want to overcome spiritually just as they were delivered physically. We want to see God ruling and reigning in our life because they are just getting hammered and destroyed over and over again as we read through there. That cycle going through over just getting beat up and their lives are miserable. And so... That, that cycle just continues, and it continues, and it continues, and it continues. And you just kind of see it again here, that picture of, of that cycle going and going and going. And what I want to ask you, it's easy to look at those people, right? Those Israelites who struggled with all their stuff, but what are the cycles of sin in your own life? What are those ways that you are are trapped up, you know, that you are snared, that that's something in your life, some sin, some emotion, some attitude that you keep coming back to. You feel like you're never going to get rid of it, you know? That thing that you have, I mean, a lot of people have this, like, I, I, I resonate with that thing of, oh, it's hard to, like, have victory over this just one area, you know? Like, that one thing, I just keep going back to that. And you're kind of upset, and you're kind of guilty, and you don't know what to do with it, right? That one thing, maybe. And maybe there's more, or maybe there's less. Whatever. But just that, that thing that, that you want God to give you freedom from. That you want to overcome. That you want to have victory. And I want you just to pursue God, you know? Big time in prayer when it comes to that. And asking God for, for spiritual healing and freedom. Because Christ gives freedom. Christ gives freedom from things like pornography. Christ gives freedom from your anger. Christ gives freedom for that that people-pleasing part of you that isn't ever like living for God or yourself or anything, but just pleasing others. Christ gives freedom from eating disorders, from depression, from alcoholism, from greed, from hate, from sexual addictions, whatever that might be, Christ gives freedom freedom. 
He's a God that wants to give you freedom, that longs to give you grace. But maybe you just feel like, ah, I can't. Well, and you know what? You can't. You can't overcome on your own. And so my guess, like when you think about maybe times in your life that you felt free, times when you felt like, okay, I've got victory over some of these sorts of areas, I have a couple guesses of things that were taking place in your life. One is you, you most likely were in a regular rhythm of spending time with God. I'm not saying read your Bible more, pray more, then that's going to fix it. I'm just saying you probably are in a regular rhythm of spending time with God when you are experiencing freedom. And you most likely are also experiencing community of some sort that both encouraged you and challenged you. And so I want you to seek those things out like with all your being. You know, when you think about, okay, I, wanna, I need to be in a regular rhythm of time with God. And then you think, I need community. So if that's things like life groups, like Laura was talking about, if that's something like Celebrate Recovery, there's a table out there on Celebrate Recovery. If that's something like our, our prayer ministry, in the next steps in the bulletin, there's some information about that, of just people to really intentionally pray that you would have spiritual healing and freedom in some of these areas of your life. That you would pursue those things wholeheartedly, you know? Really commit and go for asking God to give you that freedom. And that's what I, I really, my hope, my desire is for you. Because, you know, all this stuff happens. All this stuff happens to the people in the book of Judges. But the thing is, is that it is God who overcomes the world. It is God who overcomes sin and slavery and bondage in the people of Israel's life and your life. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It's done. It's finished. He's done the work. You know, that, that, that God in the book of Judges, he's the one that sends the judges, the ones that deliver them, the ones that rescue them, the great heroes in the story. God sends them, but God is the one that's the, the hero of the story. This like kind of word cloud chart of the book of Judges that there's all these other words, but God's the hero. God's the main character in the Bible, okay? It's not all these people that we think that we look up to. It's God. God is the great victor. God is the one that we, that we look to to be able to overcome. And Jesus is the ultimate deliverer that breaks the cycle of sin that we struggle with and he breaks it forever. He's done it. Through his death, through his resurrection, through his death, he took all of the sin of the world and he bore it upon himself. That the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on that cross. So all the oppression and all the suffering that we deserve was poured out onto Jesus. And so that justice was met, right? That justice was met. But then when he comes alive again, the resurrection of Christ is when there's this power over sin and death. That Jesus has the victory over sin, over death, no power over him. He has overcome it. And he is God and we worship him. And we can have a life that overcomes as we pursue him. As we have a life of following him with all of our being. Because Jesus, as he said, I have overcome the world. And 1 John 5, this is an awesome passage to you. 
1 John 5, 4 to 5 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we believe that Jesus is God, we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved, and we are able to overcome through Christ. And that's amazing. That's an awesome, awesome gift. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, it's not about us. It's not about just drumming it up and and doing more. Yeah, we have a role. We have a responsibility. We want to be wholehearted followers of Christ, but we can have true freedom through the gift of Jesus, what he has done for us. And so I have a couple ways for us to think about this, okay? A couple ways for us to respond to this. And, and you all in this room are coming at this from different spots. And so I would say to those of you who've been following Jesus for a while, okay? You're a follow, you would self-identify as a follower of Jesus, a Christian. You have, you have entered into a relationship with Christ that you have said, yes, I believe, Jesus, that you are God, that you have died and rose again. I believe I need your forgiveness. If that's you... I want to ask you this. What's an idol, a vice, a compromise that you have allowed to stay in your life? And I want you to consider that. That one thing that you're kind of cycling over and over through. And allow God to enter that place with you. You know, and spend really, like, spend some good intentional time in prayer asking Him for freedom. Asking Him for healing in that. And I would ask you even this morning, if you want to come to one of the prayer points and just receive some prayer for that, I encourage you to come. We want to be able to like, stand with you in that. And then I want to ask those of you that maybe you haven't, you know, you've never said, Jesus, I believe that you are God. You've never said, I, I need forgiveness. I need that. I need you in my life. And you've begun that that relationship of following Jesus. I want to give you that opportunity right now. I want to give you an opportunity right now to say yes to Jesus. Today, here. You've never prayed that sort of prayer to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I'm in. I need you to overcome all this sin in my life. I've tried myself, maybe. It's not working. And so if you would want to pray that prayer today, I would just ask you just to put your hand up, even right now. Just to say, I want to... I want to pray that. Awesome. 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 Anybody else? I want to pray with you. I want to pray with all of you. What I'm going to ask is for those three people that I saw raise your hand, and for anybody else in this room that didn't raise their hand but you want to, I want to ask after, when we start to sing songs, I'm going to go over to that prayer point over there. I'd love for you just to come over and just, I'd love to pray with you and just kind of, just help you along the way a little bit. We shouldn't do it alone, okay? Can't do it alone. So come and let's, let's pray together. If any of you that didn't raise your hand, come on over. Let's talk about it, okay? Let's pray for you to enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's awesome, you know? And so we're going to sing, we're going to worship. There's going to be the stations. You can come bring your offering to these stations, these tables around the room. You can come take communion to remember what Christ has done, that it is his death on the cross that took the sin of the world upon him. We want to remember and celebrate what he has done. Remember, don't forget. That's why we do these things. Remember, don't forget. So let me pray, 
And those three of you, I want to pray specifically with and for you, okay? Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the rescuer, the deliverer. That you are the one who has conquered sin and death. And I pray that you would continue to rid our lives of the idols that we still tend to worship, God. And I pray that you would be the only one true God of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us true freedom. And Lord, I pray right now for these folks in the room that would want to begin a relationship of following you, Lord Jesus. And I would ask that that those of you would pray with me something like this. Almighty God, I know that I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus, you are God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe in my heart that you rose from the dead. Please help me now to live this life for you. In Jesus' name, amen.